and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, January 18th, we are studying 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. In today's text, St. Paul tells the Corinthians that the love of Christ compels him to conduct the ministry of reconciliation among them so that they would be a new creation in Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Glad to be with you again here to study more of God's Word together. So we get started today. Give us some context. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul's been saying leading up to this part of chapter 5? Yeah, so I think overall we want to kind of remember that at least uh, a big part of sort of why this letter is written is because in Corinth, there's sort of this um, group of people that we don't honestly know a ton about, but they are questioning uh, Paul's authority. They're questioning his ministry. Um, among the Corinthians even. Uh, and so they're really giving him a lot of uh, grief, even though he's not there. Uh, and so he is writing about that, and we'll see that in our text for today as well. But what he really uh, does here in our text is kind of tells us why his ministry uh, is what his ministry is. And he's he's already started this in chapter 5, speaking about the different um, sort of uh, things he goes through in his ministry, these various uh, weaknesses and trials and troubles. Uh, And then he kind of comes right before our text, and he reminds the readers, uh, and also I think himself again, that uh, he will, you know, have to give a a reckoning for what he has uh, done on earth. Uh, You know, it's kind of similar language to the parable of the talents there that, uh, you know, he has this fear of the Lord then that says, hey, I'm going to stand in and have to give an, a reckoning, an account. And so he says that drives him to be faithful to Christ more than being worried about what others think or other such considerations. But then as we go further into the section we'll cover today, um, we'll also be told that the that we might say the main reason or the chief reason that he does ministry as he does it um, is because he knows he's loved by Christ. Uh, and that love of Christ uh, that he has for Paul compels him uh, to carry out his ministry in the way he does. All right, well, let's take a look at this text. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11 this morning. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our text for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Pastor Hoppe, we start off with the word therefore, recalling some of the things that Paul has spoken previously. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Let's talk about the the fear of the Lord and how that motivates Paul here. Yeah, so it is kind of like I mentioned at the beginning that he's just spoken of that accounting that he'll give on the last day. Um, And so this isn't a a fear of the Lord that's like a, a terror, right? But it is one that understands uh, who the Lord is and that the Lord ultimately is uh, the judge uh, and that he is returning in and, you know, expects uh, for us to be able to put forth uh, something uh, before him. Now, again, there, we want to be careful with that language to make sure we're not uh, confusing people to think that somehow on the last day, right, we're just judged by the merits of our work. Uh, but there is this uh, question of what, what have you done with the things I've entrusted to you? Um, and so that's kind of this fear of the Lord. And then he says, well, because of that, it, his main job is to persuade others. Uh, this, this word seems to, among the biblical scholars, kind of, uh, they like to argue over this world, word because uh, Paul, uh, you know, in other places says, you know, he doesn't use persuasive words. And yet now here he says, he kind of describes his whole ministry as persuasion. Uh, others think maybe he's talking about persuading the Thessalonians or even kind of these opponents uh, of his that have arisen in the church there. Uh, but I think he is just describing his ministry here and just saying in the most general way, again, because of the impending judgment, uh, his whole life is about persuading others to believe the gospel, uh, which you know he'll state so beautifully at the end of our text, uh, but that's what he's trying to persuade them, not in a matter of, well, he's going to persuade them because he's so persuasive, but he is going to persuade them by the proclamation of the gospel. That is what happens is people are persuaded into belief. That's the Holy Spirit calling, gathering, and enlightening his church. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to the, the point that Paul's not out to earn something, he's said in more than one place in this epistle already that this is all about the work that God is doing. Uh, Chapter 3 comes to mind right away, where he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And so we've noted this a couple times already in this epistle, and I think it's in the background here as well. Paul, knowing that none of this actually depends on him, that motivates him to work all the harder 
even though he knows that it's all dependent on, on God, or maybe we should say because he knows it's all dependent upon God, he works even harder. And I think that's a helpful way for us to think about what's involved in the fear of the Lord here, and also this language of persuasion, that it's not based on Paul's rhetorical ability, but simply on the fact that he's presenting that which alone can persuade and bring others to the faith, which is the, the gospel of Christ. Yeah, and I think it's a reminder to us, too, that God can persuade people, and that he can persuade even people we think that won't be persuaded. Um, you know, I, so often we don't speak, I think, because we're just convinced there's no way what I speak could change what this person thinks or what they're doing. And Paul says, no, right? If you understand God truly, uh, go ahead and speak and then watch what he might just do that would surprise even you. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I think you're you're exactly right that we think about those loved ones of ours that we've spoken to many times. Maybe we've, we've invited them to church or uh, talked to them of the gospel, and it seems from our perspective that there is no hope. Knowing that it's, again, not our persuasion, but the Lord's, calls us then to continue to speak to them and to, to let that word do the work when and where God pleases. And, and I'm, I'm sure you can say the same thing, that it it's often those people, well, there's, there's no way that person's going to come back to church, that the Lord does. He does work. And, and when, when he does, we shouldn't be surprised in the sense that, well, I didn't <laughs> see that coming. Right? Uh, but we should give thanks that, yes, the Lord has done for this person what he did for me, too. Uh, he brought me a sinner to faith. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And I think just overall, to kind of wrap up some of those initial thoughts is just this idea that whatever we're doing, if we're going to do it with confidence, it has to rest in a confidence that we have about God, right? Who he is and what he can do. And that's true whether we're sharing the faith uh, or anything really that we're doing in life. We understand, right, that we're confident because God's a good and gracious God, a giving God, and therefore we're kind of uh, fully resourced for everything we need to do. We're equipped for every good work, as the scriptures would say. Yeah, and I think in that context, then, seeing the words fear of the Lord here, it helps us to understand what that means, not so much a, a trembling before God in this case, but a, a recognition of who He is and who I am in relation to Him. And because I've got that kind of fear of the Lord, that this is all dependent upon Him, including my own salvation, that enables, again, Paul to speak in this way and enables us as Christians to speak in this way as well, knowing who God is. He's the one that's going to do this work in that fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, he, he continues then in this verse that what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So we we see again the the very intimate way Paul speaks to the Corinthian congregation throughout this letter. He's showing it here again. He, he talks about the relationship he's got with them and this how he's known to them and to God. What's he saying here in the second half of this verse? Yeah, so uh, as we look at that part, he's already told us that he's not doing this, right, because he wants other people to like him or to have a high opinion of him. But at the same time, uh, what he is saying here is that he knows that before God, he wants to do the right thing. And in that way, right, uh, what he is, the sincerity and genuineness of which he goes about his work, not being perfect, but being sincere and genuine, uh, that's known to God. And then he throws in this, which probably was a little bit of a stinging statement. And he says, well, I hope, 
you know this too. After all, right, Paul is essential in the founding of the congregation there at Corinth. And he also says here in your conscience, which I think is interesting because I think what he's saying here is you've got these other people that are trying to convince you that my ministry among you was not as good as it should be. Uh, But he's saying, but surely you know deep down who I am, what I do, why I do it. Surely you know that uh, because of my time among you. So he, he really kind of says to them, they should know this already, why he's doing it. Uh, because he's been among them. Hmm. How do how do we see something like that still in the the pastoral ministry today? That like we pastors are are known to God, and we we hope that that is known to our congregations as well. How how is that still something that that shows up between pastors and congregations today? Do you think? Well, I do think this is one of those things, and uh, you know whether it should or not in one sense, but it sometimes takes a little bit to kind of establish this kind of relationship, right? But at a certain point, people are more willing to sort of be led because they do trust that you are doing what you're doing out of a love for Christ and uh, out of a love for them also, right? Then that flows from that love of Christ. And so, um, you know, their conscience just tells them, even if it's something that perhaps is not black and white in the scriptures, meaning that, you know, it's not something prescribed, I should say, in the scriptures. Uh, but you're saying, let's try things this way, right? Which, which we have freedom in Christ to do. Uh, if they know in their conscience who you are and what you're about, uh, I find at least they're much more likely to yield to that. Yeah, and of course the, the challenge is at what seems to be acknowledged by Paul in the very next verse, that Pastors don't want to commend to themselves of, of their own person or something like that, but they instead want to emphasize the ministry that's been given, not about it's not about the individual pastor. And I think you certainly see that from, from Paul, not only in this whole epistle, but in this section as well. So in verse 12, he says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. And then that in, con- in connection with those that might boast in something else. So uh, talk about what Paul says there in verse 12. Yeah. So, you know, again, he sort of says, I don't need to even make the case to you about who I am. And so that's not what I'm doing. But he almost says what I'm trying to do is give you some understanding of how you can talk to these other people about why Paul's ministry looks like it looks, right? Because there's almost a sense in which it seems he fears that the Corinthians sort of know in their hearts that Paul's ministry was genuine and, and you know, came from the love of Christ among them. Uh, but at the same time uh, that they know that, they have a hard time making the case because it seems, right, Paul, uh, I mean, we know he suffered a lot. He went through a lot of things. And because of that, it was very easy for the others to come in and say, oh, no, 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 right? If you're really one of God's, everything's going to be glorious. Everything's going to be great. It's it's sort of like a, you know, a faith healer coming into town and right and kind of saying, well, if I can produce one thing that looks miraculous, you should listen to me more than that parish pastor who gets up into the pulpit, perhaps, you know, not um, feeling as confident even as he should uh, at times, um, but that God works in that weakness, right? That's where he displays his power. Uh, but but he's trying to explain to them how they can explain this to those people, to say what they know in their conscience and have the confidence to say. 
Yeah, well, in this matter of not commending ourselves and then boasting about, again, Paul and, and his co-workers, as opposed to, to those who are boasting the outward appearance, I think what ends up happening, especially as you were describing it, is when you start boasting about Paul and his co-workers, you're going to be boasting about Jesus. Like, yeah, look at look at Paul, look at his ministry. Outwardly, it doesn't look that great. And, and we'll encounter lists coming up in this epistle where Paul talks about all of the weaknesses, the hardships, the persecutions that he suffered. And as he goes through those, it ends up extolling the Lord Jesus. Whereas, and again, there's a little bit of of mystery surrounding exactly what these super apostles were doing, but what we gather from what Paul writes is that when you would boast about the super apostles, all you're left with is boasting about them and whoever they are, and you don't end up with any Jesus. When you boast about Paul, you end up boasting about Jesus, which is the way it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And even, I mean, the manner then of Paul's life um, is so like unto Christ by, by God's design uh, that when you look at his life and say, gosh, how can all this suffering produce good, right? How as a Christian can you not take that same conversation and say, well, we've got to go to the cross with that talk, right? That's where we learn how suffering produces great good. Yeah, that's right. So so instead of, of boasting about your pastor for, I don't know, whatever football team he roots for, if he roots for the same one as you, or, or whatever you might boast about for your pastor, the, the best boast that you can have about your pastor is he preaches Christ crucified. That's, that's what counts when it comes to a, a pastor. Yeah, absolutely. And and blessedly, I'm finding, not that we get a ton of people just stopping in, but those that we do, those visitors, um, they aren't coming anymore because they understand that we preach the scriptures and we preach Christ. And I think God is, um, you know, sort of gathering uh, those kind of people that are looking to hear that word uh, into our churches, right? And I mean, to us, it's sort of just it's what we do. It's who we are. It's what we were trained to do. But to them, they do get it, right? That we're we're talking about Jesus here. And when they hear, sometimes they get that the other places they've been, they really don't talk a lot about Jesus ultimately. Right. Yeah. And so that would be then not only the reputation for for a pastor, the boast of a pastor, but the boast of the for the whole Christian congregation. What what is it that that we want our congregations to be known for? Above all else, it is the preaching of, of Christ and Him crucified, that that is where salvation alone is found. And and yes, those who—I mean, you're, you're right. I think we, we are starting to see people in our country who realize they've been missing that in one way or another, and when they encounter that in our, in our congregations, they, they, they see that, and they, they hear that, and they believe it. And, and again, that is not to the glory of the pastor, not to the glory of the congregation, but all to the glory of God, who alone is, is sufficient to do these things. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, so Paul then, he says in verse 13 something that, that's a little strange, perhaps. It, coming out of this, you know, what are you going to boast about? He says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. What, is, what does it mean to be beside ourselves and that being for God? Well, I think in general here, you know, and this is something where we are um, coming to learn more ourselves in our context, what this kind of stuff, um, the, these phrases, right? We we would have thought just, 
a matter of decades ago that no one would say, well, because you espouse basic Christian doctrine, you must be mad, right? Mm. But increasingly, we are hearing that. And we don't know to what extent, you know, Paul tells us at places that he's not really that good of a public speaker. He, of course, has this thorn in the flesh. Um, was he just a an unusual guy in general? You know, was he sort of easy to say, dismiss that guy? We, we don't know the details of that. Um, but what we do know is that this must have been sort of one of the arguments of his opponents was that this guy is mad. Why would you even listen to him? Why would you continue to subject yourself to his teaching? And, and again, he says here, if you see me being doing something that's completely foreign to our world, well, then know that that's God doing his thing because that's what God does, right? Uh, again, chiefly the cross. The cross is foolishness, right? So is our preaching of the cross. It's foolishness. People think we're mad to talk about it. Uh, and we just get to say, oh, that's, that's what God wants me to talk about. So even if you think I'm crazy, I'm going to do it anyways. Well, and this is one of the reactions that Jesus has to his own ministry that huh. others have to his ministry in the Gospels. Is that, that's what his family thinks about him when they, they come to him, right? That they, they think he's, or they either think he's crazy or they're reporting that people think he's crazy. Isn't that in the, the Gospels? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, kind of the point there in the specific context, right, is he's not even stopping to eat. That's how, you know, compelled he is to continue to proclaim this message. And again, you know, it's kind of like the world goes, whatever, however important what you think is, you still got to eat, man, you know? Uh, and Jesus is so compelled to get this message out that he forgets about that, right? And and so the world and we'll get into talking about this soon, but with how the world thinks, this fleshly way the world thinks, they just can't understand when a person is just compelled um, by Christ and his love that they might, yes, even forget some of the things people think are pretty essential. Mm, yeah. So, okay. So if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. And then he adds, if we're in our right mind, it's for you. How does that factor in? Well, I, I think the simple point of this, this is to me a little hard to put these together, but I think the basic point he's saying here is, uh, and we see this with Jesus too, right? Jesus would say things that would sort of confound the crowds and then he would explain them plainly to his disciples. And I think that's kind of part of the idea here of what the apostle Paul is saying is, listen, you know that when kind of we sit down and I get to explain to you what I'm doing, that I just, I sound reasonable, right? I don't sound crazy. Uh, so, and again, why is there a difference? Well, there's also a difference because the Corinthians have the Holy Spirit, and so they can discern things spiritually, uh, and therefore he doesn't seem out of his mind to them, uh, while those that are worldly and don't have the Spirit cannot perceive those things rightly. I think, too, thinking about some of the other things he said in this epistle, especially back into chapter one, where he was talking about everything being for the comfort of the Corinthians, you know, when when the when the apostles were comforted, it was for the Corinthians' comfort. When the apostles were afflicted, that also was for the Corinthians' comfort. And so even as as Paul and his co-workers are considered beside themselves and out of their minds for the sake of God, that too ends up being for the benefit of the Corinthians in that sense, that, that as the apostles go about their faithful ministry here among the Corinthians, it's not to make a name for themselves— but it is for the benefit of the Corinthians. It's for their good. So that, as you're, as you're saying, when the apostles then explain to 
the Corinthians, here's what these things mean, here's how these things are true according to the Word of God, and it's they're in their right mind in that sense, it ends up all being for the sake of the Corinthian church, not for somehow Paul to make a name for himself or to distinguish himself as like, oh, look, there's that crazy preacher. No, all of it, his entire ministry is for the sake of of doing what is right for these Christians there in Corinth. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's sort of a conviction uh, that particularly pastors have to have, those that have been given you know, responsibility of, of leadership and preaching and teaching in the church is, uh, at times we do have to simply say all of this I'm doing for you, whether you get it or not in the moment, I'm doing this. Now, again, that's not to say we don't make mistakes, but when we're doing our ministry rightly, uh, again, it may seem unwise to some people to say this or to speak about this or to not speak about that. Um, but you know, again, um, ultimately we're doing that because we think it is the best for our people that have been entrusted to our care. Yeah, and in that sense, I mean, the pastor becomes the, oh, how, do, how do I say it? He becomes the, the guy that takes the, takes the brunt of that persecution, at least to start, so that, you know, when the world thinks, boy, this pastor, he's nuts for preaching the things that he, he is. How can he say these things? He becomes the, he, the focus comes on him as the one who's out of his mind, but as the pastor then explains that, rightly to his congregation in the in his right mind according to the scriptures then they see that oh he's he's receiving the brunt of that persecution for us so that we can continue in this true teaching of God's word and and then yeah the congregation probably comes to have the, a similar reputation but not because the pastor somehow did it again for his own personal glory but for the sake of of keeping this congregation in the truth of God's word yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And and it is something I think we're going to continue to see a little bit more manifestly in our world. So it's good that we're talking about it now because it'll give us, uh, you know, the way to, to discern those things when they occur more and more. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we're going to keep taking a look at this text from 2 Corinthians 5. More on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Philip Hoppy this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, January 18th. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. 
Pastor Hoppy, prior to the break, we made it up to verse 14. In that verse, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. So before we get to the because what he has concluded, let's talk about this love of Christ that controls him, the uh, his fellow workers. What does he mean? Yeah, one thing I was reading used a story to illustrate this point, and I, I think I'm going to steal that if I can, which is, uh, it's a story about, say, a girl that wins a huge trip, right? Uh, a trip she's always wanted to take, you know, a trip of some great value. Uh, and then kind of in the culture, it's found out that she's not going to go on this trip because she's going to stay with this other person um, and be there for them because they're they're sick in the hospital. Not gravely sick, but sick. And the question becomes, well, why is she giving up something so great to sit with this other gal? You know, and people say, well, can't somebody else go? Can't you, you know, whatever. Maybe they say in our day and age, can't you video chat her while they're gone? You know, uh, whatever it is. And, and she finally says, well, I didn't want to talk about this really, but at a different point in my life, this woman that's now sick really took me in. She loved me. She took care of everything that I needed. She, uh, you know, was there to lead me in wisdom and in guidance. And so it's the least I can do to go and sit with her now, right? That there's a love out there that she had experienced that was so great that now controlled her, right? It, it determined what she should do. That lady had given up everything for her. So sitting there in the hospital room was simply uh, the right thing to do. And I think that's what Paul here uh, is getting across is he says, if you really get this, if you really get that what Christ has done and the love he has shown us, well, now, yeah, it is going to change your life. It is going to control even what you do. Um you know, as you, as you get up and, and go about your life, um, you know, we don't have to do this, uh, as Christian people, a lot of like, just kind of a cold sense of duty. Um, we, we don't have to do it out of the, again, that trembling fear, uh, but we do it because we've been loved and because we've been loved so greatly and so completely, we don't know what else we could, right? How can you not talk about the love of Christ? if you've experienced the love of Christ. Yeah, so the, the love of Christ here being the love that Christ has for us as sinners, which Paul is going to go on to, to extol as the passage continues, that controls us in the sense that it, it motivates us, it compels us, it pushes us. When, when you see that reality, you can't unsee it, and it colors everything that you do, the way that you live. That love that Christ has compels Paul and his fellow workers to go about their ministry among the Corinthians in the way that they have been and in the way that he continues to explain. And then he really starts to to get into what that, that love of Christ looks like. He says, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's a lot to unpack within that statement about what they've concluded. Yeah. So the first thing they've concluded simply is this, that Jesus Christ's death was for all, for every last person. And that's so true that you can say that all died when Jesus died, because it's their sin, their death that he's dying. 
And again, here, I really think this is all, all meaning not just even current Christians, right? But for the whole uh, world, those who do know Christ and those that uh, hopefully will come to know Christ. So, you know, and it's kind of doubled up on because he says one died for all. And then he says it again, you know, in slightly different words. And he died for all, right? Um, and then, right, this idea, though, that that has, again, consequences in the lives of those who do know this, right, who do understand it. Um, in theological terms, sometimes we talk about objective and subjective justification, right? And just for your, you know, some of your hearers, I'm sure, are familiar with those terms. But objective justification is just the fact that Christ's actual act on the cross was the atoning sacrifice. It did uh, take care of the sins of the whole world. The subjective is sort of the question of how does that get to you, right? Have you, through uh, God's Holy Spirit, been called, gathered, and enlightened, right, with his gifts? And so the second part, he kind of says, those that have, right, that subjective uh, experience of Christ's love being delivered to them through word and sacrament, well, they can't anymore live for themselves. It would, it would be crazy again to not reorder their lives uh, if you understand what Christ did for you, right? If, if somebody literally saved your life and you just got up and went about your normal you know, way of life after that, it didn't stop to like hug them or thank them or something. People would think you were mad, right? It's just when someone shows you love, there is a reordering of our lives uh, that that is, uh, you know, ordered ultimately around that one that loves us. Yeah. So, okay, with the terms objective and subjective justification, would you see verse 14 as describing more the objective justification and then verse 15 being the subjective? Yeah, I would. I think that's I think that's fair here. So yeah, again, that that first part where he just says he died for all, that means that again, uh, you know, Joe that lives next door to you, you can say to him, even if he doesn't believe in Christ at all, you can say, Jesus died on the sin, died on the cross for your sins. And that's perfectly true. Uh, but you have to go to Terry down the street, who also goes to your church, right? And to him, you can say a little different word, right, or, or an even better word that not only did he die for your sins, but you've received now that, that uh, life-giving gift of forgiveness of sins. And now, of course, you're no longer going to live for yourself, but for the sake of that one who did that for you. Yeah, and what's, what's beautiful about this passage and the one that came before it as well, and, and the verses that we're coming up to, is you see these cardinal truths of the Christian faith, the very central aspect of what it is that we believe as Christians, that Jesus died and rose for sinners, the truth that your pastor proclaims every week to you, and you're like, well, why does he keep telling me that? Why why the same thing every week, Pastor? And you see the very, if, you know, put it in air quotes a little bit, the practical nature of that, not only in the sense that it gives you hope for the life of the world to come, but it also gives you something right now. This changes the way that you live so that, as we talked about in the previous text, you are groaning for that better gift that Christ has in the resurrection. You're looking for that. And right now, you're not living for yourself. You're living instead for the sake of others, for the, the good of, of your neighbor, and, and in so doing then, all for the, the glory of Christ. Yeah, and you'll you'll never do any of those things you ought to do, right? If you don't sure. hear time and time again of the love of Christ and don't receive that love 
uh, in the very tangible ways that God gives out that love. That's what then uh, sends you forward to have your life rearranged. And I do think we see this in people's lives, even, you know, week after week, right? They come into the house of the Lord and maybe they've been drifting off in this direction or that direction. And as they confess their sins, receive absolution, receive the Lord's Supper, right? They walk out and they now have this um, sense in themselves, I want to go live for Christ now, right? I want to go out and uh, let other people know of what I've just experienced again, like I did the week before, like I did the week before, and like I hopefully will do all the days of my life dwelling in the house of the Lord. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, every week this this happens for faithful Christians that the love of Christ reorders their lives so they live not for themselves but for him who died and rose for them. Therefore, from now on, Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh. He says we used to regard Christ that way, but we don't regard him any that way anymore. So there's like I think there's like four things going on in in this short verse and what follows. What does it mean to regard someone according to the flesh, whether Christ or others? And then what does it mean to regard regard someone no longer according to the flesh, whether Christ or others? So there's, I think, four ways of how do we regard Christ according to the flesh? Now how do we regard him spiritually, I guess? And then the same, too, for, for other people. Again, plenty to unpack in verse 16. Yeah, so if I can use these phrases, only one of which might be a real word, but you either <laughs> consider people uh, spiritually or you consider them fleshly. So let's then, you know, at the risk of a bad pun here, let's flesh that out. Um, <laughs> so Paul uh, tells us, let's take Christ first, right? That when we think about the Messiah coming and Paul was, you know, very well trained in the Old Testament and the hope of the Messiah, he says that, you know, there was a time where when he thought of the Messiah, it was mostly about flesh kind of things, mostly about worldly desires, about power, uh, about the defeat of enemies, about perhaps, uh, you know, just a rule uh, over uh, all people that could kind of be enforced from the top, right? That that's viewing the Christ in that way is that he's mostly coming to establish this earthly kingdom. But once Christ dies and Paul knows he's the Christ, well, you got to kind of give that up, right? That That's not what happened. Uh, and so Paul, it seems, you know, spiritually here then relearns how to think of the Christ. And how does he think of him? Well, that the Christ conquers by dying and rising. That's exactly how he does that. And that is to think spiritually and in this sense, rightly uh, about the Christ is that that is how he came uh, into this world and that he came ultimately to destroy even grander enemies than people thought he might come and destroy uh, and to give an eternal kingdom instead of an earthly kingdom. Um, but then, you know, if real quick with people, same yeah. thing is that we, you know, we can very easily kind of think of people. And I think here, particularly, Paul is talking about those that are preaching and leading in the church that, you know, you can think of them just in terms of their particular gifts, their abilities, their how many people can they bring into the pew, how many, whatever it is, whatever metric you want to use, that we can consider people that way. 
but that to do so would be uh, to think of people fleshly uh, instead of to think of them uh, spiritually. Um, and then if there's a final thing, we might just say like, then this just, he says all people, right? So everyone we meet, we're not so much concerned again with their worldly well-being, right? Uh, we're concerned with their spiritual well-being and even the things we do that impact their worldly well-being, we're doing for the sake of Christ and for a spiritual reason. Well, and maybe to, to try to connect that to what we were saying with verses 14 and 15, that so knowing who Christ is in this spiritual sense rather than the, the fleshly sense, knowing who he is according to the Holy Spirit, the faith given by him, revealed in the Word, then when I, I look at anyone I meet, rather than thinking about them in that fleshly sense, I think about them in that same spiritual reality that I, I know in Christ, that anyone I meet is someone whom Christ has died for, someone whose whose sins have been placed upon Christ. He died for them on the cross, and and in him, then, that forgiveness is theirs. So I can, I can look at them in that reality, and with my life, again, ordered by the love of Christ in that way, it changes the way that I then act toward that neighbor whom I see in that spiritual sense. Yeah, agreed. If I can share kind of a personal story, just where our church went caroling. <laughs> and as we were caroling in a nursing home, uh, we had one of the other residents put a mini speaker outside their door and blare rock music and tell us that we shouldn't force our religion on other people, right? Wow. How do I view that person? And, and to be honest, this is something I've been thinking about today, right? Is one is just to view them in a worldly sense of, man, is that guy or that gal, right? A mess. Man, are they. You know, they got a lot of stuff going on and a lot of rage. That's to think of them solely in a worldly way. Uh, but what we're called to do is think of them spiritually, right? And to say, um, to have some compassion in a sense of say, why did they do that, right? What's going on and how tragic it is that they would be in that state since Christ has died for their sins, since he has come to give them the peace that they obviously don't have. Um, and I've been trying to, I, I want to follow up with this person, <laughs> but I, yeah. I, the, the, the reason to do so is only if I'm viewing them spiritually, will I do that? Right. If I'm looking at them fleshly, you say good riddance, uh, they're a mess move on. Right. Uh, but if you look at them spiritually, you say, ah, is there a way I can explain to them the love of Christ? Yeah, that's right. Knowing, knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others. So, so no. knowing who God is, that person is one who needs to hear the gospel, which alone can persuade, and which alone then makes a new creation. Because again, to, to think about the way that this comes to the person through faith, verse 17 talks about the one who's in Christ. So knowing who Christ is, in, again, not in the fleshly way, but according to the Spirit, uh, what happens when a person is in Christ? Yeah, so they're made completely new, right? And we've just sort of said this, but even right down to the way that we think and perceive other people, it's night and day difference about how we go about our life, right? This is, uh, to know Christ is completely life-changing. As you said before, obviously it's life-changing in the sense of the eternal life that we'll share with the Father uh, for, you know, at the end of time. But it's life-changing right now, right? With what I'm going to do with my life, what am I supposed to be doing? How do I interact with other people at work? How do I 
if I'm a, you know, a younger person, how do I interact with people at school? All of those are things that are now reconsidered because you are brand new, right? And if that person in that nursing home comes to know the love of Christ, it doesn't mean everything will change overnight, but they'll have a whole new life, right? A new, they will be a new creation and start to consider things differently. Yeah, when I hear the language of being in Christ, I think of of baptismal language, you know, that we are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. Therefore, to be in Christ, to be a baptized child of God means the well, the language of the catechism, the old Adam has been drowned, the new creature has been has been raised with Christ. No, ab- absolutely. Yep, it is certainly Paul loves to take this language and tie it with baptism because it's that beautiful picture of the death of something uh, and the life of something, both, I should say a picture and the reality of it, right? The picture is the, uh, being drowned and being brought out of the water. And the reality, uh, is that old Adam being drowned and this new man coming forth. Hmm. Yeah. Now, Paul assures the Corinthians that all of this is from God. So this, again, the, the thought of being out of your mind beside yourself, this is what is actually from God. This ministry that Paul has been proclaiming along with his coworkers, this is the one from God. And what is God doing through it? He's reconciling the world to himself. So talk to us about this ministry of reconciliation that Paul begins to speak about in verse 18 and following. Yeah, one thing I don't know that I'd ever studied before, but this word reconcile, at least the root of this word, um, originally apparently was used sort of in uh, terms of exchanging coins that, you know, if we think about uh, someone changing, uh, you know, whatever, dollars for Canadian dollars or whatever, you know, that there's an exchange rate. And that was its basic meaning, but is that there's something being exchanged uh, here. And, And so... The question might be, well, when we think about reconciliation, we rightly, and this is how the scriptures speak about it too, think about two people that are sort of at odds for one reason, being brought back together. So what's the exchange? Well, this is the awesome news, and it's just going to kind of keep getting better here towards the end. But the good news is God is willing to exchange hostility between us and him for peace between us and him. That's the trade he's willing to make because of Jesus. And I mean, how, you know, how could there be anything greater than to know that you're at odds with the most important person in the world, the most important, um, you know, being in the world uh, and all that that would entail, right? Both uh, talk about the terror part of it, that, that you would have that, but even just a sadness of having no relationship with that person. And again, God, through Christ, uh, solves this trouble, and he exchanges now that we have perfect peace with our Creator, our Heavenly Father. Talk about how Paul then regards himself and, again, his co-workers as ambassadors for Christ, that God makes the appeal through us. What is, how does that add to the picture of, of Paul's ministry and the pastoral ministry, to see, see that as being an ambassador for Christ? Right. So this sort of goes to that objective and subjective kind of idea again. The the apostles and those who bear the office of the ministry ever since, right, they have to take and proclaim what happened objectively uh, outside of Jerusalem, and they have to now come and proclaim that in every place, in every locale. And as they do that, they are ambassadors, they're emissaries, they're, you can use a lot of words here. 
but they're the ones sent to make clear that what has happened there in Christ's death on the cross is for each person they talk to, each person they get to preach for. Uh, and he says, this is the whole of the thing we're doing now is we're coming and saying, would you like to make this exchange? Would you like to have peace with God instead of hostility with God? Uh, if so, I have that to offer you, right? God has sent me and it. It does remind us, right, that God does this work through people, through pastors, uh, and even through others, of course, as well. But he does even this work of proclamation through means. Um, and, and that's why, right, we have that passage in, uh, uh, in Romans about, you know, how can they uh, hear if, they, if no one's been sent to preach to them, right? Somebody has to come with this message for you to know it. Yeah, that's right. And this, I think, helps to inform what we were talking about earlier with the thought of, again, we persuade others. So as, as Paul and his coworkers proclaim the gospel, this isn't anything other than God making the appeal through them. So when And when faithful Christians today speak the Word of God within their vocations, whether that is as a pastor publicly preaching the Word of God, or a mother speaking to her children, or a, a father and a husband speaking to his family, or a, a co-worker speaking as, as he has opportunity, or, or a classmate, wherever the Lord has placed us, uh, this is this is God making the appeal. We persuade in the sense that we we speak, and then God does the work through that word that He has placed upon our lips. Yeah, no, I, it's absolutely true. And again, what confidence does that give us to go about this work? Right? It, again, if I think it's up to me to convince my uncle of this, I'm I'm not even going to try. Right. And like you said, if I have tried, I might think I tried and I failed. But again, if we know that this is God making the appeal through us, we just open our mouth and then we get to leave it up to God to do his work. Uh, and obviously that person, unfortunately, can still reject the thing that is offered to them. Uh, but again, we might just be blessedly surprised that God goes to work and does persuade that person. That's right. That's right. So Paul, in verse 20, he ends, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then in verse 21, he gives one of the, the most beautiful gospel statements in the, in the entirety of the scriptures that describe how Christ accomplishes this reconciliation. The ESV translates like this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Help us to unpack this glorious gospel. Yeah, I mean, this is this is profound in every way, right? This is, and like you said, and yet it's the simple uh, explanation of what our faith is all about. Um, Martin Luther, of course, he he used the word exchange here to describe a verse like this, the great exchange. And he says here, you know, if we talked about the exchange between hostility and peace, now we go to a different exchange where Christ takes upon himself our sin. He never once sinned. He never had anything to do with sin, and yet he will end up bearing the sin of the whole world, right? There's the first part. He takes him who knew not sin and makes him to be sin by uh, having him bear our iniquities, our sins. But then at the same time, what's the other exchange on that? Well, we who know sin very well, we who are well experienced in sin, all of a sudden are given a gift that's very foreign to us, namely the righteousness of God. 
It's bestowed on us freely. It's given to us. And in, once it's given to us, once we have the righteousness of God, we're reconciled to God, right? We're two, two righteous creatures living together. Now, again, creator and creature, I should say there. Uh, but, but we're perfectly reconciled. We're perfectly righteous. And again, not because we worked our way into righteousness, but because it was given to us solely as a gift. Now we can live with the righteous God forever. Yeah, this this great exchange is such a, a wonderful picture to have in our minds. And I think we're we're usually pretty good about proclaiming the first part that our sins have been taken up off of us and placed upon Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're we're very good at keeping that one in mind, the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes maybe we neglect a little bit the second half, that it's not just our sins are gone and we're some kind of a blank slate. Because if that was the case, then we'd f- mess it up again pretty quickly. But rather, our, the we are covered then. The righteousness of God becomes ours so that God counts us as righteous. And that, I mean, both things, this, this exchange, our sins are gone. We have the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God now. It's, a, it's glorious good news, the whole thing. Help us to, to wrap things up. Got a minute left, Pastor Hoppy. Yeah, so the scriptures often describe this kind of in terms of clothing, right? That our filthy rags are taken off of us. But like you said, we're not left naked, right? We're not just left at a neutral state. No, we're given something completely perfect and beautiful and glorious to wear. And that is the righteousness of God. That's what we have. And that's what we get to offer to everyone else saying, be reconciled to God, right? He's already taken his your sins upon himself on the cross. Now come, receive the righteousness of God in Christ. Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. He's been helping us today to study 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to be here. Christ knew no sin, but God made him to be sin for our sakes. Our sins have been taken off of us and placed on Christ, and now the righteousness that is Christ, which he has won by his perfect life, death, resurrection, that becomes ours. So be reconciled to him. Trust in him. Receive that salvation that he has won for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 2 Corinthians 5, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.